You're listening to the Redemption Church Podcast as we go through a series called A Beacon of Light, a case study of Hezekiah. Uh, I love King Hezekiah. I think Hezekiah is an amazing, amazing king. And um, I'm a history guy. I teach history. Um, I teach Bible and history uh, at school. And uh, so there's a lot, a lot of history that goes into this. And so I hope you can um, enjoy this as much as I do. Um, So I hope you've been enjoying this whole series on King Hezekiah. And I just think it's such an amazing testimony of this righteous king as he stands before the Lord. But you and I know Hezekiah wasn't perfect in any way, shape, or form. But when you look at the kings of Judah, and, and I know Pastor Daniel has talked about this a couple of times. He mentioned it last week. By this time in history, okay, after Solomon was king of Israel, that was a joint nation, and then his son took over, and then you had uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and they were battling, and then the kingdoms divided, and so then you have the kingdom of Judah, and you have the kingdom of of Israel, and um, so at this time in history, there were two, and so you look at, and in the back of my uh, other Bible, um, a Bible that I've had for about 20 plus years, maybe 25 years now, I typed up a little chart of all the kings of Israel. And it has all the kings of Israel on one side and all the kings of Judah on the other side. And then in the second part of the little chart, so it's got four columns, right? Kings of Israel over here. And then what kind of king they were. Good, bad, very bad, very evil, particularly horrible. That's some of them, okay? And and it kind of goes down through each one and it parallels them. Who was the king of Israel? Who was the king of Israel? over here at this time in Judah. And so it's been really helpful for me. Uh, But one of the interesting things about that, when you look at that chart, all of the kings of Israel are bad. Bad, 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 bad. After Solomon, every king of Israel was bad and led God's people astray. The kings of Judah, they go back and forth. They go back and forth. So uh, there's eight good ones out of um, all of the kings. Um, They're all on the side of Judah. There's eight good ones, and Hezekiah is one of the good ones. Uh, But as we've learned already talking about Hezekiah's dad, Hezekiah's dad was not one of the good ones. Hezekiah's dad, Ahaz, made a pact with Assyria already. And tonight we're going to talk a little bit about Assyria and uh, some of the things that are going to happen there as the Assyrian king comes to attack. And so uh, tonight's message is called Hezekiah Delivered. Hezekiah Delivered. And we're going to see God show up in an incredible, amazing way in Hezekiah's life. So Hezekiah has been so faithful He's been so faithful as we've looked at this series, as we've seen the things that he's done. He's taken down the high places, okay? So what you see is Ahaz and a couple of the other kings before him said, hey, this is really inconvenient for everybody to come to Jerusalem to worship. Let's add some altars up here in the north, and let's add some down in the south, and then nobody has to travel, Everybody will be within just a few miles. They can make their sacrifices there. They can do all these things. The problem is, is no one ever consulted God and said, hey, is it okay if we make an altar up here and an altar down here? As long as we're still bringing the sacrifice and using the priestly system and doing all these things, can we do that? 
No one ever talked to God. No one ever consulted God. They just came up with this plan because it was easier. It was easier. And so Hezekiah takes down these places. Now in this time period in history, the people believed that the higher you are in elevation, the closer you are to God. So that's why high places. So all altars would be built on high places. And you can see this in church a lot. You can see this in church history. You see that when people take pilgrimages, where do they go? A lot of times, they're walking on their knees all the way up to the top of this hill to get to this statue, a high place. A high place that we've put something that's supposed to represent God And then we make these sacrifices to get to these high places, but we have to remember, that's not a high place that God established. That's something man-made. That's something that, that man did to make himself feel like he's making these sacrifices for the Lord. And that was what was happening in Hezekiah's day. So he tore those down, okay? And then the Asherah, okay? The, uh, this, was a, this was a pagan god, And it's very kind of grotesque if you look at the statues of it. Um, So you don't necessarily want to look that one up on your phone, all right? Uh, We were in youth, and I was like, look up this. And then I kind of uh, was like, well, yeah, it's part of what they were worshiping in that day. And then I said, look up the bronze serpent. And we talked about the difference between the two, and I know you guys have talked about that. And the Bible says that Hezekiah took down that. He took down the pagan gods. And he took down this bronze serpent because the people had begun to worship it. The people had begun to worship this instead of worshiping the living God. And so many times it's easy for us to replace our worship of the living and true God to something, to anything at all. It is so easy for us to replace worship. And and we do that so many times with routines and things. And I love routines. Okay, I get up in the morning, okay, uh, for several years, I get up first thing in the morning and I, I jump right into the word and uh, get, I, well, okay, let's get honest. I go make a cup of coffee and then I jump right into the word, okay? Go make a cup of coffee. I don't make it very long without a cup of coffee. So I, then I get into the word and I'd spend 30, 40 minutes sitting there praying, reading God's word, uh, kind of going through things and uh, praying for the day. And uh, then I'd catch up on the news a little bit. I teach a little bit of current history in my class, current events in my classes. So I'd always scroll through for about five or 10 minutes before I'd wake my kids up. Recently, I started going to the gym um, at five o'clock in the morning, so um, that's shifted. And so devotional time is now later in the day. Um, so that's an interesting new routine, but the reality is, is switching your routine sometimes is good for you because it keeps you from, from being locked into this is what I do and it just becoming habit as opposed to a true time of worship before the Lord, okay? So we don't wanna let anything We don't wanna let anything just become routine when it comes to worshiping Jesus. Even coming to church on Sunday nights. We don't wanna come just because, oh, it's Sunday, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, okay? We don't want that to be our attitude. We always want to go with a joyful heart to worship the Lord. And this is what Hezekiah was trying to do. Let's get rid of all the junk. Let's get rid of all of the things and let's restore it back to what God has called us to. Let's bring it back to the place where he has called us. So 
Hezekiah has been good. He's been faithful. And tonight we're going to look at 2 Chronicles 32, 1 through 23. Now we're going to read a lot of scripture tonight, okay? So I hope you brought your Bibles. Some of it will be up there. Some of it won't, okay? So I'm going I'm to challenge you a little bit here. We're going to be in 2 Chronicles 32. We're going to be in Isaiah 37 as well. And that one ain't up there. 36 and 37, Isaiah 36 and 37. A little piece of Isaiah 37 is up there. Uh, so we're gonna pray before I start reading the word of God and uh, then we're gonna jump right in. Lord Jesus, we just thank you. Lord, you are so good and so holy. Lord, and we just wanna bring everything that we have to you. Lord, we wanna lay it down at your feet. We wanna learn from you this evening, Lord. Lord, we want you to minister to our hearts, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. Lord, teach us, guide us. Lord, minister to us. Show us the things in our lives, Lord, that aren't pleasing to you. Bring us into true worship. Lord, help us to seek you, Lord, in all that we do. Lord, and may all that we do, all that we say, bring you glory, honor. May our lives just be beacons of light as you shine through us, Lord. Light in the darkness. So we thank you, Jesus. We love you, Lord, and we just pray that your word tonight would minister to hearts, Lord. In your precious name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, so we are going to read, okay? Got my little glasses here. It's the only way I can read this stuff anymore. All right, so it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 1, and I'll be reading from the ESV. After these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. Thinking to win them for himself. And I'm going to stop right there. I just told you I'm going to read a whole bunch of chapters, and I just stopped after one verse. You guys are in trouble. I am going three hours. Okay? <laughs> Listen, Hezekiah has been faithful. Hezekiah has done everything that God told him to do. And now watch what's about to happen. Our faithfulness does not exempt us from the enemy's attack. Our faithfulness does not exempt us from the enemy's attack. After these acts of faithfulness, Hezekiah, the king of Judah... Okay, remember, he's king of all of Judah, right? He's good, he's faithful, but he still gets attacked. He's good and he's faithful, and he still gets attacked. Maybe you're here today. You feel like you've been incredibly faithful to the Lord. Maybe not. Maybe you've messed up. Maybe you've had your high places. But maybe you feel like you've been faithful, or you were faithful, and life got messy, and you thought, if this is what it means to be faithful to the Lord, then why? And I, I know a lot of people that have felt that way. I know a lot of people that have walked through situations and, and literally walked away. But it's because we're not worshiping the Lord for the right reason. If that's where we find ourselves, that we want to walk away when things get tough, then we're not coming to him for the right reasons. We're not coming to him because he is the king of the universe, because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, because he is worthy to be praised. We're coming to him for what we get out of him, 
we should come to Jesus humbled, broken, bankrupt. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we are bankrupt before the holy Lord, the holy God, and we recognize we have nothing to give and he owes us nothing, yet he's willing to give us eternity. Then we come to him in true worship. Then we come to him in true worship. But you know, when we're faithful, it's only human to expect. It's only human to expect, so I'm not here to beat you up because I've done it a million times. I've done it a million times. So I wanna tell you my story just a little bit. I was a missionary for six years, okay? And I had served the Lord faithfully. I moved my family to a foreign country. I learned a new language. I ministered to people there. Did everything that I felt like the Lord had told me to do. I started a church. After a season, I noticed some things in my family and I prayed, I got counsel, I sought counsel. Really felt like the Lord told me, okay, I want you to give it two years. I want you to raise up another pastor here. I want you to disciple, I want you to train him. And then I want you to leave this ministry behind with a local. And so we began to pray and <clears throat> I had consulted with my wife and um, said, yes, this is absolutely right. And uh, moved back to the States. And after being in the States for a few years, trying to be faithful to the Lord, I ended up with no job. I ended up with no house, no way to buy a house. Went to the bank, had some money, enough to pay a down payment on about half a house at that time. They were way cheaper than they, than they are now. I didn't have that much money. And the bank said, what have you been doing for the last seven years? Your employment record is kind of empty here. I was like, oh, I was a pastor. And they're like, what are you doing now? I'm like, well, I'm delivering catered food. I'm fixing doors and cabinets. And they, they're like, yeah, your work history doesn't match. I'm sorry, we can give you nothing, nothing at all. Lived in seven different houses in one year, moving from place to place and place, and it did its toll on my family. Um, and here's what happened, faithfulness. I felt like I'd been so faithful to the Lord. And I, I thought at that time to write a book called Entitled, because when I came back, I was like, Lord, you owe me. I've been so faithful. Why am I dealing with the things that I'm dealing with? And then things really fell apart. Things really fell apart. I was married for 20 years and my wife decided she didn't want to be married anymore and she left. She left. And it was tough. And I fell to my knees. And if you've ever been through anything as crazy as that, anything as difficult as that, that type of loss, you know that your intimacy with the Lord is deeper than any other time in your life. As long as you lean into him, as long as he's where you find your refuge. Because people do one of two things in those moments. They either lean in hard to Jesus or they walk away. Or they lay it down. 
And usually it'll tell you whether you were coming to Jesus for the right reason or not, how you react in moments like that. No matter how faithful we are, guys, sometimes there are things that happen that you cannot control. You cannot control it. I begged the Lord. I pleaded with the Lord to change things. And he didn't. It's an area of loss in my life. It's an area that God still has to deal with me with because it's an embarrassing area of my life. It's embarrassing. I'm a pastor. I'm a Bible teacher. That's not supposed to happen to missionaries, pastors, and Bible teachers. That's not supposed to happen. But there are things that happen in our life that are completely outside of our control. And just by the grace of God, I stand here before you tonight. Just by the grace of God. Just by the grace of God. Not by anything that I've done, but by what he's done in my life as I've leaned in harder to him and known him more through this process. So when we go back to King Hezekiah, when we look at King Hezekiah, he's been faithful. He's done what the Lord told him to do. And he made some mistakes because he did make a deal with the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. He made a deal with him and he said, hey, uh, we need chariots. I'll make a deal with you if you just give us some chariots. And so in that moment, he had depended on somebody else to provide for him. That was just a mistake. I've made mistakes. We've all made mistakes. None of us are perfect. But Hezekiah was a faithful king, and he's king of Judah, right? He's king of Judah. I love this story. I absolutely love this story. And one of the reasons I love this story is because in the end, spoiler alert, God wins. In the end, God wins. Now, I just shared with you a little bit of my story and their, their battles, that's what we call them. And you're gonna lose some battles in your life. You're gonna lose some battles. You're gonna lose some territory that you never thought you would lose. You're gonna lose some places in your life that you didn't think would happen. And Hezekiah has to deal with that as well. Hezekiah has to deal with that as well. But just like you and I, God wins. He wins in the end. He wins in the end. What that looks like, we don't always know. What that looks like, we don't always know. But I know my victories in the Lord are walking with him, being with him, being here with you, being here, teaching his word, and him allowing me, me to still do that. Being able to serve him in spite of everything. God is so faithful. He is so faithful. And he always wins. He always wins. So where, whatever your battles that you've lost, whatever they are, whatever they are, in the end, if we are faithful to the Lord, he wins. He wins. He wins. And ultimately, if you're his, you win too. That's good, right? If you're his, you win too. Because when God wins, so do his kids. So do his kids, right? All right, let's uh, move on. So uh, when we look at this invasion, okay, there's a lot between the invasion 
and the victory. Because it says there in the second part of the verse that I read to you, it says, Hezekiah was faithful. Then the king of Assyria came and invaded Judah. Remember, Hezekiah is the king over all of Judah. And so Hezekiah's faithfulness did not stop that attack that came to Judah. And Sennacherib would actually take cities in Judah. There would be many battles that would be lost in various cities all throughout Judah. Okay? Now, Sennacherib attacked various cities in Judah and had started making his way with a massive army down to the city of Jerusalem. And this is where King Hezekiah was. King Hezekiah was in the city of Jerusalem, the city of David, surrounded by a wall in the city of Jerusalem. And it says in verse two, and when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem, he planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside of the city. And they helped him. A great many people were gathered, and they stopped all the springs and the brooks that flowed through the land, saying, Why should the king of Assyria come and find much water? He set to work resolutely and built up all the wall that was broken down the raised, and raised towers upon it. And outside it, he built another wall. And he strengthened the Milo in the city of David. He also made weapons and shields in abundance. And he set combat commanders over the people. He gathered them together to him in the square at the gate of the city and spoke encouragingly to them saying, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. There was a horde with him, guys. That's a lot of soldiers, okay? I'll go on and tell you it's 185,000 soldiers that were marching with King Sennacherib, okay? And he says, don't be afraid of that horde for there are more with us than with him. And you can only imagine that the people standing there that Hezekiah is telling this are looking around going, there's more of us than are with him because they knew what was coming and they were afraid. This is why King Hezekiah was telling them, be strong and courageous, guys. Don't be afraid because they were afraid. They were afraid. He was trying to encourage them. And he says this, he says, with him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our Battles and the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. God fights our battles. We prepare and God fights our battles. We prepare and God fights our battles. Hezekiah says, God fights your battle. He says, God is with us. He can bring all the men that he wants to bring, 185,000 soldiers out there. Don't be afraid because the legions of heaven. Angels upon angels are on your side, not on his side. God himself will fight the battle for you. That's what Hezekiah tells his people, and that's what God is telling us here today. God fights our battles. We plan, we prepare, but God is the one who gets the victory. If you look at this part of scripture, you see that Hezekiah trusts the Lord to fight the battle, but he prepares. It says that after consulting counsel, always a good thing to do, whenever you're in a situation that's very difficult for you, whenever you're in a battle, 
spiritual battle, whatever it is, ask someone for advice. Go to someone that you can respect, elders of the church, people that are spiritually mature, and say, hey, this is my situation. How should I handle this? How should I handle this? Because here's the reality. When we're surprised, like I was with my story, I was in no position to make right decisions. I needed counsel. You're broken. You need counsel. When Hezekiah sees all these things coming around him, he's like, all right, guys, I, I, I was not expecting this necessarily. Help. What do we need to do? What do you think about this? Is this a good idea? Okay? Is this a good idea? And move forward on it. When you seek the counsel, he decided to shut off the water supply from, outside, from the outside world, right? Every day, the people of Jerusalem would go out of the water gate, okay? If you've ever been to Israel, there's 12 gates in the wall, okay? And one of them is called the water gate. Now, there's a really amazing journey that you can take from the gates in the wall that actually tell you the gospel. From the dung gate, which is where the trash is, which is our sinful lights, over to the water gate, which represents the Holy Spirit and the water of the Spirit of God flowing through us and being baptized by the Spirit and being given the gifts of the Spirit into the beautiful gate, which is where Christ will enter in to sit on the throne, which is the ultimate victory we have in our final salvation glorification when we're with the Lord. And so it's really cool as you can go around the gates of the city and you can see how the different gates represent different stages of our actually, actual walk with the Lord from the gospel to redemption, to the trash and the garbage to a gate that actually represents hell, okay? That's a trash gate where they burned all the trash outside of the city and they said it's so hot out there that those embers just burn always and when you would throw trash out, it would just burst into flames. It was so hot. And references would be made to this gate about hell, about Hades, because it was so hot, okay? And so Hezekiah, all right, he builds a wall around the well. So there's this spring, it's the Gihon Spring, and it's right outside of the city wall and Hezekiah says, why would I let the enemy come in and have fresh water for all of his soldiers while he's hanging out here trying to keep us inside of our city? Because that's how the Assyrians attacked people. Fortified cities were the way of the day, right? Fortified cities were the way that these people, they built a fortified city, they built it on top of a hill, you can see in all directions, all these types of things, okay? A fortified city has a wall around the outside of it, okay? And now there's this spring on the outside. And he says, what, people leave out that gate every single day to go get water and they bring it back into the city so that they can actually feed their family and have things to drink. Why would I let him take that fresh water from us? Because I know that if I don't protect that spring right there, our people have to go out there while all of his soldiers are standing out there, fear of their life just to get water every day. Build a wall around that thing. And he says, better yet. And here's the interesting thing, right? This story is in three places in the Bible. Three is a very important number in Jewish history. Anything that's said three times is of vital importance, of vital importance, okay? Uh, that's a Jewish historical thing. 
Anything that's said three times is of vital importance. This story is told three times in the scripture, right? It's told here in 2 Chronicles 32. It's told in Isaiah 36 and 37. And it's also told in 2 Kings 18 and 19, okay? So it's three times in the Bible. And if you've got your little reading plan, it's all written down for you. Right? Your little reading plan tells you exactly where it is in the Bible in Hezekiah Delivered. The one right above, Hezekiah Delivered, shows you exactly where to find all of that information. Okay? And so Hezekiah builds this wall around the spring, okay? but that's not enough. He says, the other thing that we need to do is we need to build a system for the water to get from this spring to the other side of the city. And so he dug a tunnel. It's called Hezekiah's Tunnel or the Tunnel of Shalom. And Hezekiah's Tunnel is amazing. Trust me, I've been there. One of the reasons Pastor Daniel wanted me to teach this passage is because I got to go to Israel. Uh, I think it was four or five years ago. COVID messed up all my dates and when things happened. I've lost track of how many years ago certain things were. But I got to go to Israel and I got to walk through Hezekiah's tunnel. And I'm gonna tell you, it was one of my very favorite things that I saw in all of Israel was Hezekiah's tunnel. It was amazing. It was amazing. And one of the reasons that I think it was so amazing to me because it's basically one of those moments where heaven meets earth. And here's why I tell you that. Because God told Hezekiah, Build that wall around that spring, build a tunnel underneath of the city and get it over to a pool over here where people can draw fresh water without even having to go into the subsection, outside of the main gate into the walled section, get that water flowing. That way, if they tear down the outer wall, the enemy, okay, if they tear down the outer wall and they're able to get to the spring, they won't be able to see and understand that the spring is constantly flowing down through a channel underneath of the city to create a pool on the other side. And we'll still have fresh water. Even if they think they're cutting off our water by tearing down that wall, we'll still have fresh water. It's brilliant. And so he dug this tunnel, and this is what he did, and this is what is so amazing about this thing. And, and still, archaeologists and geologists, they're like, what? we don't even understand exactly how this happened with no tools, okay? Now, they had pickaxes, okay? But they didn't have those surveying tools, you know, those fancy things that they put up, and they're just the scopes, and they're like, yeah, this way, okay, this way, you get on that side where the tunnel's gonna end, you get on that side, and okay, now we're digging here. Oh, no, 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 go a little to the left, to the little, little to the left over here, a little over, over, nope, no, 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 if we're gonna meet, okay, so they start on two sides, digging through solid rock with pick, pickaxes, and they're digging through solid rock, and they come together in the middle, and they're literally off, by the width of the tunnel, that's it. And so there's this one part in the tunnel where this side went just a little too far and then this side dug straight into it. And so this one part where you're walking through the tunnel and there's this little thing, looks like it's gonna go off to the left, but it really just goes into a dead wall about uh, three, four feet inside. And that's because that's how far they were off from each other, starting with just pickaxes on two sides, 1,200 feet apart a 1,200-foot tunnel. I did have a picture up here, but it didn't transfer when I emailed it over, okay? So Pastor Daniel said he would put some of those pictures that I sent 
up on the website, so it didn't go through the program uh, when I put it over. So, um, but it's amazing to see. Now, when you walk through there, there's still water flowing through there. Now, I'm gonna tell you, it's a little intimidating. That's four football fields worth of length, okay? About three and a half, if you count end zones and everything, all right? About 1,200 feet, all right? So, now, a football field's, what, about 130 yards, something like that. So about three, three-something in feet. So it's, it's about three and a half, four football fields. Imagine walking three and a half, four football fields in complete darkness underground, and the water starts at about your ankles, and as you go through, it gets as high as up to your waist. About the middle, when you're about 600 feet from getting out of this thing, there's water up around your waist, okay? Now, it's only for the adventurous, Okay? It's only for the adventurous. Uh, I took about 40 kids through the middle of that thing. Uh, I had a couple of screams at times. Um, so, you know, students that just were, were kind of freaking out there, all right? Um, so, but I love this because if you look at the book of Luke in chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, Jesus is healing a blind man. And remember the story where he puts mud in the blind man's eyes and then he says, hey, go wash up and you'll be able to see. Guess where he sends him? The pool of Shalom or Shiloh, it's often called. The pool that Hezekiah created when he created that tunnel to make the water go from the Gihon Spring all the way through the city of David to the other side to create water inside of the city wall. Now, here's the crazy thing, and this is why I say I love history. I love the way that God shows up when heaven meets earth in history. It's just a beautiful thing because for centuries, they said, this story right here, it's false. There is no King Hezekiah, okay? There, there's, there's no record. There's no tunnel. We can't find anything, all right? There's no spring. I mean, there's, no, there's the spring of Gihon, we can't find the tunnel, and we can't find the pool of shalom that Jesus even talks about there. We can't find that stuff, All right? In 1838, 1838, y'all, 1800 years after Jesus has already died on the cross, some guy's reading the Bible and says, I think I know where this should be. And he goes, and he's got a lot of money. His name's Sir Edward something, I don't remember, okay? He goes, he's got a lot of money, and he starts digging, and guess what they find? The entrance off of the spring of Gihon to Hezekiah's tunnel, and they keep digging, and they keep digging, and they dig out Hezekiah's tunnel, and water starts to flow again, and you can walk through it today, just like I said. Now, in 1880, a boy was bathing in the water of the tunnel and he found an inscription and it told exactly how the tunnel was built. And that's how we know. And that inscription today is in a museum in Istanbul, in Turkey. You can see it, I had a picture up here for you, but again, me and technology sometimes, you know, um, 
I don't wanna call any of you guys out, but I think the more gray hair I have, the less I understand technology. I don't, I don't know if that goes hand in hand or not, but it seems to, the more they update it, the less I get it, right? Um, so anyway, but the cool thing is this boy was bathing, he found this inscription, which was a plaque on the wall, and it said how they built it with men on both sides pickaxing towards the center to get water into this pool. Now they still couldn't, find the entirety of the Pool of Siloam. But in 2004, 2004, 18 years ago, they found it. They thought they had found it in one place and they're like, we think this is it, but it doesn't really match the description exactly. So again, a guy reading the Bible goes, I think I know where that should be. And they dig and they find it. So we see again, when heaven meets earth, God told them to do it, it was there. The scripture said it was there. Archaeologists said, this is not true because it ain't there. But it was always there. God just waited to reveal it, to show himself true. Let them be skeptics, God said. Let them be skeptics. I'm not gonna prove myself to them right now, you know how many times Jesus said that in the scripture? He doesn't use the word skeptics, but he said, they're like, show us another miracle. Show us who you are. And he's like, listen, the only reason you want to see another miracle is because you want stuff for yourself. I show you miracles all day long and you're still not going to believe in me. So when we're seeking miracles from the Lord without the right motive, God ain't going to give that stuff to us. He's not going to do it. But he'll reveal his glory in his time. And that's what he's done through this tunnel. And it's so cool. I highly encourage you, if you ever get the opportunity, go to Israel, walk through this tunnel. Man, if I could take you, I will, okay? If I can take you, I will. I love this thing, all right? Now, here's the thing. He prepares. He digs this tunnel. He's got water inside the thing. He's got a wall around. Now, history tells us that took two years. Two years, we read these stories and we're like, oh, the battle's coming, the battle's coming. A couple days later, the battle's there. A couple days later, this thing happens, all done. Boom, we're done. Woo! Right? It took two years to build that. Two years to build that. So the city, Hezekiah's watching his country being overtaken for two years. He's battling for two years in these different places. And, and Sennacherib moves into to Lachish, okay? Uh, and, and, and he takes Lachish, and that's part of Judah. And then, and then he takes other cities uh, surrounding the area. And Hezekiah is stuck in this, trying to fortify Jerusalem. And, and he's watching the rest of the kingdom fall to the hand of this Assyrian, this pagan king. And watch this. Watch this, this is terrible. I'm gonna have to hurry up, y'all, because otherwise it will be three hours. Verse nine, it says, after this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, who was besieging Lachish with all his forces, sent his servants to Jerusalem, to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all the people of Judea, to Judah, who were in Jerusalem, saying, thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, on what are you trusting that you endure the siege in Jerusalem? 
Is not Hezekiah misleading you that he may give you over to die by famine and by thirst when he tells you, the Lord your God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? I think that's how Sennacherib would talk. That's just my version of it, right? He's very pompous, very pompous, very full of himself. Has not this same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem? Before one altar you shall worship, and on it you shall burn your sacrifices. Is that really what God desires? Says Sennacherib. Does that sound familiar? The power of words. Genesis chapter 3 might bring to mind. Is that really what God wants? You know, the enemy only has one or two tricks. We're just dumb enough to fall for it every single time. He just rewords the same couple of tricks over and over and over and over and over again. Is that really what God said? I mean, today our culture is so much of, well, but don't you think that God wants me to be happy? This makes me happy. This doesn't make me happy. Yeah, but this is of the Lord. Yeah, but it doesn't make me happy. So I don't want it. I mean, I know God said don't do this, but is that really what he meant? I mean, isn't God love and grace and mercy and all of these things. And, and doesn't he just want his people to enjoy life? Isn't that what he wants? Isn't that what he wants? Completely lost my place. Verse 13. Do you know, this is continuing on in this letter. Do you know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of other lands where the gods of the nations of those lands at, at all able to deliver their lands out of my hands? Who among all the gods of those nations that my fathers devoted to destruction was able to deliver his people from my hand and that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion and do not believe him for no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand and from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hands? And his servants said still more against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. And he wrote letters to cast contempt on the Lord, the God of Israel, and to speak against him, saying, like the gods of the nations of the lands who have not delivered their people from my hands, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. And they shouted it with a loud voice in the language of Judah to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten and terrify them in order that they might take the city. And they spoke of the God of Jerusalem as they spoke of the gods of the people of the earth, which are the work of men's hands. If we look at the book of Isaiah, we see a slightly longer version of this letter. And it says, Isaiah chapter 36. I told y'all I was going there, right? Isaiah 36, verse 1. And I'm going to read a lot of scripture quickly. Y'all there? Isaiah 36, verse 1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against the fortified cities, the city of Judah, and took them. The king of Assyria went to Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with the great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool of the highway of the washer's field. And there came to him 
uh, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And Ravshaka said to them, did you guys get out your baby name books? Okay, those of you guys who are still having baby names, because these are good, these are good. Ravshaka, Ravshaka. I think that's, you should definitely write that one down, if nothing else. Shebna, I think, should, should go really far up there as well, okay? Um, you want your kid to be weird. All right, do you think that the mere words are strategy for war, he says in verse five? I'm sorry. Rabshakeh said to them, verse four, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what does, do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting, do you see this? Trust, 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 trust. He's challenging their trust. He says it seven times in this passage. Seven times in this passage, in whom shall you trust? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is, such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now come, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come upon against this land to destroy it? Oh, no. The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. And here's the reality. God did tell him to go destroy it. Because the people had been unfaithful and God was using this wicked king to punish the people. But Hezekiah had been faithful and God was going to protect him. God does often use wicked men to punish people. Then, baby names, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Hey, please speak to your servants in Aramaic. For we understand that and don't speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people on the wall. So speak in your tongue because we understand your language and we don't want our people to hear what you're saying because they're going to get scared, okay? Yeah, that's like telling a baby not to do something, right? They're certainly going to do it right after you tell them to do it, okay? And he says, speak to us in this language. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. Hear the words of the great king. And he began to speak in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Hear the words of the great king. We're in verse 13. The king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for you will not be able, he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Man, the enemy always looks good, doesn't he? He says, I've got something good for you. And if you just come out to me now, I won't destroy you when I take this city. And I will surely take this city. Follow me now or be destroyed. Your choice. You follow me now, 
And he says, when I come and take you, I'm gonna take you to a land and it's gonna be just like your land. It's not gonna be much different. Don't worry about it, okay? There'll be grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. And, and just beware of Hezekiah, lest he mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his hand out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Baby names, you guys get them, okay? Where are the gods of, here's a big one right here, Sepharvaim. That's a really good one right there. Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Oh, now we're talking about places that we recognize, right? Samaria. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But they were silent and answered him not for the king had commanded them, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and Joah the son of Esphah, and the recorder came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him of the words of Rabshakeh. Now let's turn back to Second Chronicles and get the end of this story because we ran out of time 10 minutes ago, but it's too good to stop, y'all. The Lord delivers Jerusalem. I'm kidding. I'm so used to having to stop at a certain time because of communion, but we already did that, so... Um, So it confused me when I looked over and said, what time is it already? All right, but we're almost done here, so stay with me. It says the Lord delivers Jerusalem. Hezekiah, the king. Now remember, they're in this city. King Sennacherib had brought troops, okay? Hezekiah, the king, of, the king and Isaiah, the prophet. Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amaz prayed because of this, because of these powerful words that had been said against the people. Hezekiah and Isaiah began to pray. And I told you, when you face a battle, you have two choices. You can get on your knees and you can fight in the power of the Lord or you can run away from it and it'll destroy you. It'll destroy you. The enemy's plan is to destroy you. That's what he wants. Scripture says that, that he comes to destroy. He doesn't come to give life. Christ came to give life. If I got two choices, do I lean into this guy or this guy? This guy right here, he promises the moon and delivers nothing. This guy right here promises heaven and delivers everything. Which one am I gonna lean into? Why so many times do we go that way? Because this way, there's a lot of things that he offers that just feel good. That just, they just make me happy. They just make me happy. And it says they prayed. And because of this, they cried to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and the officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with his face down in the land. Isaiah 37 says this, and I think this one's up here, right, Brian? Isaiah 37, starting in verse 36. It says, it, with a few more details, because I like this. Isaiah 37, same exact thing. And it says, Isaiah and Hezekiah prayed. And it says, and the angel of the Lord 
went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all the dead bodies, 185,000 dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. We've heard that name before, haven't we? Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, his own sons had lost respect for him, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Aserat, Asherhadon, his son, reigned in his place. Victory in prayer. A few weeks ago, at the beginning of the year, we did a series on prayer. And my topic was victory in prayer. And here we go again. And I think that's not by coincidence because I think I told you the messy situation in my life at the beginning of this. I'm gonna tell you right now, it's all been through being on my knees before the Lord that the Lord has held me up and walked me through all of it. Because I can't do that myself. We have victory in prayer like Isaiah and like Hezekiah have had victory in prayer. As we close out the passage, Isaiah calls the angel that killed 185,000 men. That's why I like Isaiah's version. He calls him the angel of the Lord. And if you know about Old Testament Christophanies and Theophanies, appearances of Christ before his birth, they're always referred to as the angel of the Lord. So here's Isaiah in chapter 36 and 37, talking about the angel of the Lord coming to kill 185,000 men. 30 years after this first prophecy that he gives to Ahaz, 30 years, Hezekiah will pray and the angel of the Lord shows up on the scene and defeats this massive army. Defeat was certain until they prayed. Defeat was certain. Isaiah says, in chapter 37, he told Hezekiah, I mean, he told Ahaz in 7, 8, and 9, he said, not an arrow will come into the city of Jerusalem. Not a single one. There will be no attack on that city. It was a prophecy of this time. It's so cool how Isaiah prophesies the Messiah. Then we see a, a Christophany, the angel of the Lord, show up and defeat 185,000 men. This is the thing, guys. Whether you're studying the Old Testament or the New Testament, Jesus is always there. And here's the picture I get. This Emmanuel Christmas child born of a virgin, Christ with us, God with us, is a warrior King, Revelation 19, the Bible says he will come back on a white horse. And he will come back with a multitude, an army behind him. He is a warrior king. And this warrior king, God of the universe, creator of all things, loves you to pieces. Loves you to pieces. When you're losing battles in your life, he wants you to get down on your knees and he wants you to get other brothers and sisters just like Hezekiah did. He said, Isaiah, I can't do this. You help me. I'm weak. I'm tired. He actually, this is what Hezekiah sends to Isaiah. He says, I'm like a mother giving birth 
who's gotten to the point of giving birth and I'm so tired I can't even push. Women, you understand that, right? I'm so tired I can't even push anymore. And Isaiah says, oh, just keep pushing because victory's coming. Victory's coming. And then you mothers out there know, a few minutes later, you're usually holding a precious little baby in your hand and you have great victory. You just got to push through it. I don't understand anything about that, but <laughs> I've seen it three times, but I don't understand anything about that. But what a great victory in Christ we have. He's been there since the beginning of time. He's not a new thought. We see him all throughout the Old Testament. And he is a warrior, king of the universe, creator of all things. He is so powerful. But he so gently and tenderly loves you. He'll sit with you and walk you through anything you're going through. Just get on your knees and ask him to be with you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for these stories that remind us of your faithfulness, Lord. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that they remind us that you're always with us, that you never forsake us, Lord, and that when we come to the end of ourselves, Lord, and we fall on our knees and come to you bankrupt, not with the things that we have done, Lord, but recognizing what you have done, Lord, that's where we find the victory. So thank you, Jesus. We love you, we praise you, we just give you all glory and honor. In your holy name, amen. Amen. This is Pastor Daniel Williams with Redemption Church. Thank you so much for listening to this message. You can subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Google Play, or YouTube, so you never miss a message. The mission of Redemption Church is to pursue and to proclaim Jesus, and we would love to have you partner with us. Feel free to share these messages with your family and friends. And also, if you'd like to donate to the ministry, go to redemptiondb.com. God bless you.